Now, we're going to continue a conversation that we were having. I'm going to, by the grace of God, do my best to move into the next part of this prosperity culture series that we've been in. We, were ta we talked about tithing, uh, and we talked about giving, the offering, and tonight we're going to talk about sowing. But we're going to get into it a little bit differently because the Lord and I have been having a conversation, and I love our conversations because he has some very interesting things to say when you listen to him. I don't know if you were aware of that, but he's, he's actually pretty smart. Um, tends to be smarter than I am, and I hate, I, ha I believe, I tell my wife this, I say, honey, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. You never want to be the smartest person in the room because then you can't learn anything. So... The Holy Spirit and I have been having a series of conversations, and he, he bounced me around. I was listening to Oral Roberts. I don't know if you ever listened to Oral Roberts. Uh, I was listening to Oral Roberts preach recently. Uh, Oral Roberts was Kenneth Copeland's spiritual father. He's one of the men of God that pioneered so much of what we call the Word of Faith movement. Um, if you do a, a study on church history, the Word of Faith movement is essentially what we are. Uh, we are an offshoot of that. Um, it's, you know, religion has to give a name to everything, but really the Word of Faith is just the Word, right? But Word of Faith is sort of this core belief system concerning, based around Mark 11. That if you say into this mountain, believe, you know, be, be thou removed, be thou cast to the sea, and shall not doubt in your heart, but believe that those things that you say shall come to pass, you shall have whatsoever you say. That's the core tenet of the word of faith. And it's what we preach. But uh, Or Roberts was one of the men who was the pioneer in the word of faith movement, him and Kenneth Hagin. Kenneth Hagin is the spiritual father to Pastor Phil and Pastor Barbara, whose dad and mom's spiritual, uh, spiritual parents, who's our spiritual parents. So we're what would that be, third generation from Kenneth Hagin. Kenneth Hagin and Or Roberts were Kenneth Copeland's spiritual fathers. So if you go back and you got to know your history, right? You got to know your ancestry. You know your natural ancestry. You got to know your spiritual ancestry. You got to know how far back can I go? Because you could go back to Lester Summerall, who was the spiritual son of Smith Wigglesworth, right? Uh, Lester Summerall was another pioneer in the word of faith, and uh, he was an influence on the Oral Roberts and the Kenneth Hagins. And he was Smith Wigglesworth's spiritual son. And if you go back to Smith Wigglesworth, uh, I'm not sure, I, I don't want to get my dates wrong because now we're getting to the 1800s at that point, but do your history, know your history. Long story short, I was listening to Oral Roberts and he was talking about the blessing. And after a while it all became a blur because the Lord began to talk. And so I had to pause the, the, the recording and I went he took me to Luke chapter 16. So let's go to Luke chapter 16. We're going to start there. And I'm going to, by the grace of God, do my best to connect what the Lord was saying to me. I want to give you an opening thought. When it comes to sowing, sowing is the type of giving that we as believers, especially in this church, believe that we are doing the most. It's the one type of giving that we attempt the most is sowing, and rightly so, because sowing is how you grow. So it makes sense that you'd want to be 
very good at sowing. Tithing, we know to do as an act of trust and obedience. That's not our money, so we don't have a right to the tithe. That's God's money. We are tithing as an act of obedience and trust. God trusts us with his tithe, and we trust God right back. Tithe is a covenant move, right? We've sort of settled that. If you haven't, I ain't got time for that. If you haven't settled what to do with your tithe yet, start over. Because you, you, none of this other stuff's going to work if you're not a tither. And giving, uh, we spoke about how that giving out of love, a love gift, is an essential process for walking in the grace of someone. And every type of giving, from tithing, giving, almsgiving, and sowing, all have a rate of return. And they all have a motivation. So the motivation for tithing is trust and obedience. The motivation for giving is love. Right? I give because I love. It's an expression of my heart and how I see you and how I love you and I want to support you. So I give. What I expect in return is not just financial, but it's grace. If you go to, uh, I got my little white book with me. Let me take a rabbit trail, and then I'll, I'll try to hop back. Uh, the Lord has been doing some things in my life and life of me and my wife lately because he's blessed us. And the thing about getting to a new level is you got to be careful not to let your faith stagnate. I mentioned this book sometime before. I don't know if any of you remember it. This little book. Now, some of you in here have come to me for counsel, advice, I don't give advice. I give instruction. Uh, a pastor does not advise. A shepherd does not advise his sheep. They instruct by the grace of God. So if you, if you came to me for advice, you can take a leave advice. But if you ask me, I'm going to listen to the Holy Spirit and give you an instruction. Some of you I've instructed uh, to read out loud certain scriptures, and I send you a bunch of scriptures. If you ever got scriptures from me, you didn't get just one or two, you probably got like 10. You know, that's that Pastor Diana Grace. Uh, <laughs> because one thing about the word is it's got to be in your eyes and it's got to be in your mouth. You have to read it, but you have to speak it. You have to say it out of your mouth every day. So if you ever came to me with an issue and I followed it up with scripture, you got a few scriptures. One piece of advice that I give, this is advice, you can take this or leave it, but I'll tell you it helps if you take it, is to write all of, all of them down in a little notebook. Because it's just more convenient. It's easier to, if you got 22 scriptures to read out loud, to write them all down in one thing and then just read it and make that your, your scripture diary. So this is mine, and I've had it for several years now, and it had a different cover on it, but it, the, the main cover ripped off, so this is the harder cover. Uh, and I'll probably transfer, this is the second book. The first book was all worn out, so I transfer all those to this book. So when this one wears out, I'll transfer it to another notebook. But I always have this with me. Second to my Bible, this is always with me. And it's just every scripture that I speak out loud. And I haven't even counted them, but it's probably a couple dozen. And I read these every day. And... The Lord used this little book to transform our finances over the past several years. Most of the scripture in here are financial, 
but they're really about the blessing. And you can apply the blessing to any area of your life. But I started this because we were going through financial difficulty. And the Lord said, you got to put my word in your mouth every single day. So now the Lord has issued us a new challenge, my wife and I. I'm not going to give you all the details, but I'm believing God for a certain amount of money. And to be honest with you, that's not the scary part because God is God. But he showed me how I had gotten comfortable the last year or so, and I had stopped reading my book. I had stopped speaking my book every day. And he said, you know, when you want to grow, you build on a foundation and you add to it. You don't take away from it and replace it. He says, so everything that you were doing before, you got to keep doing that, and then I can add some more to that. So he sent me back to the basics. You know, we work out a lot. And uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger said, you know, there's about four basic exercises that everybody's going to do when they want to get in shape. He said, you're going to do bench press, you're going to do deadlifts, you're going to do squats, and you're going to do, what was the fourth one? It'll come back to me. He said, but there's four movements that every bodybuilder is going to do. He said, I don't care what type of sports you play, because they've just figured out these are foundational exercises that everybody's going to do. And he would know. So one of the basic exercises that every believer, every faith person must have is speaking the word every day. You cannot develop spiritually. You cannot grow. You cannot expand if you fall off of your basics. So the Lord told me, he said, you're doing good. He said, but you're falling off of your basics. He said, go back to your basics. So I pulled my book back out, and I got back in it. And this time, I got in it, and it was like my spirit exploded. And I said, wow, man, I wish I had never, I never slowed down. I wish I had never slowed down on this. He said, that's all right. Regret, we don't do regret. He said, we don't have a, we don't have a yesterday in the kingdom of God. We only have a now. He said, there is no yesterday faith was. It's just now faith is. So don't worry about the fact that you, you haven't been doing it like you should have. You're doing it now. And it's just as powerful today as it will be tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. He said, just don't quit. Yes, sir. Forgive yourself. Move on. But he, he's got us in this growth. <sighs> See, the Spirit of God, I received the Spirit of God, is extremely interested, interested is the wrong word, motivated is the wrong word, obsessed is a better word, but it's, it's better because it gives a better picture of, of what he's motivated by, but it's really not the right word either. I don't know if that word's in English, but we'll use obsessed. He's obsessed with our prosperity, and not just financial, but yes, financial, because Luke chapter 16. I'm working on it, y'all. I'm, 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 I'm full. I can tell when I'm full because I have a hard time putting my thoughts together. Because it all, it, all, it all comes out great in the spirit. But then I got I to gotta translate it to English so other people can understand it. And it'd be like, all right, y'all going to have to just give me a moment. Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a parable of an unjust steward. And I'm not going to read the whole parable. I'll give you a synopsis, and then we'll jump to the verse that I want to get to. Jesus says that there was this guy who worked for a man, and the, the guy was in charge over the, the man's household and all of his finances and all of his business dealings, and he was accused of being wasteful. 
with the man's money. He was accused of being wasteful. So the man called him to account. The boss called him to account and said, give an account of your stewardship. This was common back then. Uh, you know, if you were wealthy, you had a business manager. We have a business manager today, an accountant, someone like that, who was responsible for all your finances. <laughs> I ain't going to tell that story. But you know, you can have the wrong person manage your finances, you can end up in trouble. Uh, <laughs> some of us might have some experience with that. You know, you got to have the right people managing your finances when you manage a certain, certain sums of money because they'll get you in trouble. And it's always with the IRS. For some reason, it's always the taxes. You know, they never mess up paying themselves, but they always forget to write that check to the IRS. Uh, but that's a whole different story. So anyway, he calls him in, and the steward says within himself, what am I going to do? He said, I'm about to get fired. And I, he says, I'm only good at counting money. He says, I can't dig. You know, I'm not a manual laborer. He said, and I'm too proud to beg. I can't be a beggar. He said, I know what I'll do. I'll go to the master's debtors people that owe him money, and I'll go to those people, and I'll find out how much they owe, and I'll cut the bill in half in, on behalf of my master, so that when I get fired, they'll take me into their homes and give me a job, so I'll stay employed. Jesus said that was smart. He said that guy did good. He said because he was going to lose his job. He said you should make unto yourself friends of unrighteous mammon. And I said, that's a weird thing for you to say, Lord, with all due respect. That was a weird thing for you to say. Then Jesus took me to verse 10 of Luke chapter 16. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore you have not been faithful in unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? No servant. Now, this verse is a direct parallel to a verse we're more familiar with. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and the evil spirit over finance. That's what mammon is. Mammon was a pagan god responsible for wealth. Jesus says you cannot serve God and the devil's system of finance. He said you, have to, you cannot serve them both. Go to Matthew chapter 6. Now we, normally when we hear that verse, we hear it connected to Matthew chapter 6 because Jesus says the same thing there. Matthew 6, 24. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Then the very next word he says is therefore. Therefore, because you cannot serve God and mammon, because you cannot have two masters, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, or wherewithal shall you be clothed. I done skipped a whole bunch of verses. Nor yet for your body what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body more than raiment or clothing? 
Behold the fowls of the air, for they don't sow, they don't reap, they don't gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take you thought for clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow not, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. That's a standard. Jesus is saying that when God clothes you, you dress better than even Solomon in all of his glory. He said, why? Wherefore is why in Old English? Why, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, why wouldn't he clothe you better? Are you of little faith? That's a question. That's a question mark at the end of that, O ye of little faith. He's saying, are you of little faith? Therefore, take no thought, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. Those outside of this covenant seek those things. For your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Now, we know that verse very well. We know it so well, it's engraved on my mother's mailbox. <laughs> when my dad and mom bought that house, I was the first one to go out and see it. Me and dad had to go look at something before, when, before we had the keys to it. And I was going for a ride with him one night. And he said, come on, I'm going to show you the new house. And we went out. And I noticed on the mailbox, Matthew 6, 33. It's engraved on the mailbox. Seek ye first kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. I said, Dad, look at that. And we had a little laugh about that. I remember we was in the van. Most of y'all know back in the day, my dad had a giant blue turtle top van. I remember that van very well. Um, Jesus connects stewardship with the proper understanding of who your source is. And it was, it was Oral Roberts preaching on the blessing that sparked this in me because he made a statement about the blessing being continual on and on. And I'm not going to try to preach his message. But he made a statement about Malachi 3 where God tells the children of Israel that I will open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing on you that there will not be room enough to receive it. And Oral Roberts made the statement to God. He said, something about that doesn't seem right because everything you blessed me with, I have room to receive. He said, so what's the, what's the deal? And he went to a Hebrew scholar. He went to a rabbi. Every good pastor has a rabbi in their back pocket. Just helps you understand stuff. He said, and in the Hebrew, room enough, not, room enough to receive is the wrong translation. A lot of the Bible is mistranslated slightly. So you really got to get revelation from the Holy Spirit. He said, what it actually means is that it never ends. I will pour you out a blessing that never ends. So even when you die, it'll never be enough for you alone is a better translation than there will not be room enough to receive it. What he's actually saying is this blessing is perpetual for eternity. You will never use it up. It's too much for any one person. That's a better translation of that scripture. 
I like that translation. Because I like the idea that while I'm living, everything God's got for me, I can put it somewhere. <laughs> right? But to walk in a perpetual blessing that never ends, oh, that's something special. So the Lord asked me this question after I heard that. I said, wow, that's good. He said, how would you waste it? I said, what? He said, how would you waste it? I said, I don't know what you mean. So he took me to Luke 16. He said, the servant in Luke 16 was accused of being wasteful. He said, how would you waste an unlimited blessing? He said, I'm connecting. He connected the, the failure of the servant to the serving two masters. Okay, he did that in Luke 16. First he talks about this servant who's accused of wastefulness. And then he talks about how you can't serve two masters. And then he repeats that thought in Matthew chapter 6 and connects serving two masters to worrying about your life. And how if you are worrying about your life, you are serving two masters, which is being wasteful. And he said, how can you waste an unlimited, perpetual, unstoppable blessing? I said, I don't know. I guess that. He said, if you're standing in front of a waterfall, millions of gallons of water falling down in front of you from, from the ocean or a stream, he said, and you die of thirst, you've wasted the waterfall. And then he gave me this. He said, in the kingdom of God, wastefulness, if you take a note, this is a good one. He said, in the kingdom of God, wastefulness is not overspending. He said, in the kingdom of God, wastefulness is under-receiving. He said, an unrighteous steward in the kingdom of God receives less than he should. You see, you can't dry the blessing up, but you can die of thirst standing in front of a waterfall. He said, if you're not careful, you will be an unrighteous steward by under-receiving. Then, then I woke up. <laughs> I wasn't asleep, but you know when you wake up in your spirit? I had to put everything on pause. I said, wow. I said, you mean to tell me that I can't overspend in the kingdom of God? He said, when something is unlimited, you can't use it up. Now, don't mistake frivolousness because frivolousness comes from the wrong spirit. But I promise you, you haven't been wealthy enough to be frivolous. <laughs> I like to get rich enough for that to be a temptation. What do you <laughs> You know, we always try not to be frivolous with $100. You know, I want to, be, I want to have a good character with $100. You know. I'm not going to preach about prodigality tonight. I'm talking about under-receiving. You see, the reason why you're not walking in what you claim you believe God has for you is because you're really not believing God for it. You're really not. Now, now, I'm going to tell you the conversation that I had with the Lord. 
The Lord told me a number that's bigger than anything I've ever believed for in my life. And he said, can you believe me for it? I said, no. Not because I, don't know, not because I know you can't do it, or not because I don't think you can do it, rather. Not because I don't think you can, not because I don't think you will. I just don't think I can believe for that. I was honest. Because what I know of believing doesn't have any variation in it. You got to be steadfast. You got to be willing. You got to be willing to stand in that spot and die in that spot when you believe something. You got to be willing when you believe it. Nothing moves you from that place. And I had never put myself in that position for that amount of money. I'd done it for less and gotten it. But I'd never done it for this amount. The Lord said, don't be an unjust steward. He said, it's my money. You're my steward. I tell you what to do with my money. And I give you the money to do with what I tell you what to do. I'm not asking you to generate the money. I'm asking you to believe me for the money. And he, he, he put a little fire under me. He said, my people are blessed. They tithe. They're faithful. He said, but they're not believing for nothing bigger than a little bit more than what they have. He said, they're, they're like babies trying to raise themselves. For those of you that have raised children or are raising children, your children, when they get to certain levels of mental sophistication, will often come to you with an idea of how you should raise them. I think you should change my curfew to this time. I think you should give me a little more allowance than this. I think I can handle this because they got this little bitty desire that stretches a little bit beyond where they are. Now, you want them to be full-fledged adults with all the freedom that it contains. But you know where they are. So you're raising them on your schedule. They're trying to get you to raise them on their schedule, and they think they're pushing you along. What they don't know is if they did those chores you told them to do every day, and if they got those grades you try to get them to get every semester, they'd have more freedom than the little bit they're asking for. But when you're a child, you're always behind your Children, let me give you some advice that it takes adulthood for you to understand. You're not pushing your parents to give you more freedom. They're pushing you to grow up so they can give you more freedom. They don't want to drive you around forever. They would rather you get a car. But they don't want to give you a car because you'll crash it. <laughs> if you would just get with the program, you have more freedom than you're asking for. And the Lord said, that's the problem with my kids. He said, they're asking for a thousand. They're at a hundred right now. They're asking for a thousand because they think they're parenting themselves at a believable rate. 
said, as if I don't know how to raise my kids. And when I tell them to believe for 100,000, they don't think they can do it. As if they made themselves. But if I tell you to believe for 100,000, it's because I know you can do it. You've never asked your kid to do anything they couldn't do. But if they don't think they can do it, they're not going to do it. Every single one of you in here has been instructed to believe for something that you're waiting to get a few levels ahead before you start believing for. Promise you that. But if you started believing for it now, those two or three levels you're trying to get to, God would grow you into them because that's how you get there. Now, I've been talking about the gym a lot because I go to the gym a lot. And uh, rabbit trail. This connects. Every month, our trainer does a, a body scan. Uh, it's called an in-body. Some of you may have done it before. Where you get on this machine, and it tells you everything about your body. It tells you how much muscle you got, how much fat you got, how much water is in your, how much cellular water you have, what your metabolism is. Tells you a whole bunch of stuff you don't want to know, right? And she does this at least once a month to track our progress. Now, when we started, our goal was weight loss. So the main number that mattered was pounds, right? Once the pounds go down. After about 45, 50 pounds, that number starts to plateau. And then you start seeing other numbers change. The focus shifts from just getting thinner to body composition. You want to have more muscle in this area and more muscle in that area and less fat in that area. Your weight ain't going to go down as much because you're a lot more fit than you used to be. And we, I lift a lot of weights, right? So a muscle is denser than fat, so it weighs more than fat. So a, so a pound is a pound, but an inch of muscle is heavier than an inch of fat, right? Because it's denser. But you want inches of muscle in the place of inches of fat, right? Well, recently, I got on the machine, and I lost muscle. Now, I know I've been lifting. I ain't got to convince myself of that. I'd be in the gym. But I had lost muscle. And she said, hmm, she said, you're trending downwards. I said, well, it's not my fault. I'm doing what you said, <laughs> right? <laughs> I train six days a week. I said, I said, I noticed my body composition. You look in the mirror, you take your shirt off, you can see stuff, right? I said, yeah, I've been kind of holding this spot for the last month or two. She said, you're losing muscle. She said, not a lot. It's less than like 0.2%, she said, but it's trending the wrong way. She said, you're not eating enough. She said, when you start lifting as much weight as you're lifting, you have, your diet has to, because she said, your body's going to eat the most nutrient-dense thing it has to maintain itself when you lift a lot of weights. Muscle got more nutrient than fat, so it's going to eat muscle before it eats fat. So you have to feed your muscle more to maintain it while you lift heavy weights. So she gave me more calories to eat. I was very happy about that. <laughs> and she, she requires me to eat more protein than I've ever eaten in my life. I have to eat somewhere around 200 grams of protein a day. That's a lot of protein. That's a lot of chicken. That's a lot of fish. I had a bowl. Okay, for lunch today, I had a bowl of grilled chicken, chopped it up. And then on the side of my grilled chicken, 
I had a can of tuna. And then I washed that down with two scoops of protein powder. Because I got to get 200 grams of protein a day. It's a lot of protein. But I lift a lot of weights, right? No carbs, right? I had no carbs for lunch today. It was all protein. I had carbs for breakfast for energy. But anyway, when your diet is not commensurate with your exercise, you're going to lose muscle. What does the spirit eat? We talked about this. It eats the word. Got to be careful. You might be burning calories, praying and believing, and not feeding at the rate that you're burning. And you're wondering why stuff ain't working like it used to. So I, I give you that, that instruction. That's not advice. I give you that instruction because for you to believe for more, you got to eat more. For you to believe for more, you got to eat more. If you eat 10 scriptures a day, you might have to eat 20. Now, are you crazy enough to do that? It's not that hard if you get yourself one of these little notebooks. It takes me about 15 minutes if I go nonstop to read all my scriptures. And I talk pretty fast, but I got a lot of scriptures in there. And that's assuming the Lord don't stop me. Something blew up in my spirit. Now, I'm, I'm dropping bombs on you tonight. I don't know if you're paying attention. Because God wants us to believe for more than we've been believing for. That thing that you're waiting to be in a position to believe God for, that's the thing you're supposed to be believing God for now. You don't know your plan. Let me explain something to you. Your job is to do what the Holy Spirit instructs you to do. That's your job. You will know what he tells you. That's it. We want to know too much because we're trying to serve God and mammon. See, God says, I want you to have that. Mammon says, the only way you can have that is if you do this, 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 and that. If this isn't right, you'll never have that. God ain't talking to mammon. God didn't ask you to talk to mammon. God didn't tell you to talk to mammon about that. He said, go get that. Okay, Lord, well, how do I get that? Because mammon says I got to do this. Well, mammon ain't raising you. I'm raising you. What we do is we try to get our vision from God and our knowledge from mammon. We're trying to get our advice from mammon. Mammon says you got to worry about what you're going to eat. Now, if you step out into this thing, how are you going to eat? That's a mammon thought. If God told you to step, you step. Well, if I do this, what are we going to wear? That's a mammon thought. See, Jesus wasn't telling his disciples not to be concerned about their day-to-day -day expenses. It's bigger than that. He said, seek the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God in your neighborhood? Should be you. What is the kingdom of God in your community? It should be you. What is the kingdom of God in your school? It should be you. If I'm seeking the kingdom of God, it's not me looking for where the kingdom of God is. It's me seeking to put the kingdom of God where it isn't. He says, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Go to Romans chapter 4. I want to know what his righteousness is. What is God's definition of righteousness? Because I don't want to seek my own, I want to seek his. Well, guess who got a revelation of what God's righteousness is? Romans chapter 4, verse 1. 
What shall we say then that Abraham, our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham was justified, what did he find out? What revelation did Abraham get? For if Abraham were justified by works, he can glory in his works, but he can't glory before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now unto him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. That simply means if you can do it with mammon, it's all you get the glory. If you can work it out without the grace of God, then your glory is your glory. But to him that doesn't do it by his works alone, but believeth on him that justifieth, that's God, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. In other words, God gave Abraham an impossible task. The man was old, his wife was old, she was barren. Mammon says, y'all can't have kids. God said, you're going to have a son. Abraham had a choice to make. He said, I can believe God or I can believe Mammon. Mammon has not given me an option. But God says, I'm supposed to have a son. Abraham's righteousness was the fact that in spite of Mammon, he believed God. Jesus said, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You cannot seek the kingdom of God without his righteousness. And Romans 4 is his righteousness. In other words, when God has you on a kingdom building assignment, you will not get it done, mammon's way, because it will already be against mammon's design. It will not, you don't look for the world's way of getting it done. Because if the world can do it, God don't need you to do it. The kingdom of God's way revolves around undoing, overcoming the world's already set up system. So what you should be looking for is the resistance. You should be looking for the impossible to do. God could have chosen any two people. He could have chosen somebody younger to be Abraham. He could have chosen somebody who was in their childbearing years and was healthy. You think Abraham was the only guy on the whole planet? Abraham won't save, y'all. Abraham was a moon worshiper. He won't fill with the Holy Ghost. He wasn't born again. And he was old and sick, not sick, but unable to have children. His wife was barren, which means they had tried to have kids before because they wouldn't know if she was barren or not if they had tried, right? She wasn't just barren because she was old. They'd been married a long time. You wouldn't have married an old woman if you're trying to have kids. And back then, you was trying to have kids. You would have married somebody when it was in childbearing years, found out she couldn't bear children. He was the kind of man that in spite of the fact that his wife 
could not bear him children, which was one of the single most important things a wife could do back then, he stuck with her. It's a good man. Waited for him to get old and just decided we ain't going to have no kids. It's a good man because he could have dumped her, got himself somebody younger, tried again. It's a good man. There's something to that. I could preach on that, but I'm not. <laughs> God looked for an impossible situation so that he and he alone could get the glory. That's what Romans 4 is saying. He didn't, if, if he could, everybody was making babies back then. It's not a miracle. It's, that's not a miracle in and of itself. Don't get mad at me. Your baby's a little miracle. But it's not a miraculous process. Let's just be honest. We all know how it's done, and for those of you that don't, ask your parents. And believe whatever they tell you. It's not important right now. <laughs> you don't need to know yet. You'll know when you need to know. All things will be revealed in time. God looked for something or the people couldn't take credit for it. Amen. See, mammon wants you to take credit for your success because it cuts God out. Jesus said the Gentiles or those outside of a covenant with God are looking for how to take care of themselves because they've been brainwashed into believing that that's an accomplishment, being able to take care of themselves. He says, but the birds don't have that accomplishment. They don't do anything. They just fly around, and when they get hungry, there's food. He said, the lilies of the field don't think that way. And they're more beautiful than Solomon, who was the richest king in history. He says, because when God is taking care of you, you just do what you're told. And you don't add nothing to it. We're all looking for accomplishment. And we think that if I build this thing for the kingdom of God, that's an accomplishment. Well, we say it's for the kingdom of God, but it really ain't it's for us. You know, the Lord said, nothing wrong with having a bunch of stuff. Nothing wrong with being rich. The only people that got a problem with being rich is poor people. Never met a rich man who had a problem being rich. Now, he had other problems. You can have other problems. But the money ain't the problem. You can get rich as you want to get. Nothing wrong with that. As a matter of fact, something, there's value to desiring something so much that you won't let anything stop you from having it. And it's that mentality that creates wealthy people. Because, see, wealthy is different than rich, right? Rich just means you got a lot of something. You can have a lot of anything and be rich in that thing. Wealthy is internal. Wealthy is who you are. Look, if you put a wealthy person on an island with a poor person, with a poor-minded person, with an impoverished-minded person, the wealthy person will have more water than the, than the poor person. You give them two weeks. Because wealth manifests in any situation. If we don't have money, whatever is the highest form of wealth in this environment, I'll have more of it than you. Promise you that. You give me enough time. I'll figure out a way to have more of something than you. Wealthy people can get rich in any economy. The Great Depression, you still had billionaires. Back in the late 1800s, I want to say right at the turn of the century, there was a young man who was working at J.C. Penney, 
Now, JCPenney has been around a long time. At this point, JCPenney was a small store. It was a, it was a, it was a department store. It was just a single location, small store. And this man, I believe he was working for $2 a week or something, which, you know, you got to adjust for inflation. Still not a lot of money. But he was not a good employee of JCPenney. He had a problem. See, J.C. Penney, he was a numbers man. He was a book man. When, you, when a customer come in, you got to make the sale, and then you got to go do your paperwork so we can track the numbers, track the sale, do all that stuff. This guy, he was over-focused on customer service. He took too long. He talked to the customer for too long. He was too friendly. He was too nice. The customers, he spent all his time with customer service, and he was bad at the book work. <laughs> and his manager told him, you'll never have a future in retail. Uh-oh, he's right. <laughs> that man's name was Sam Walton. Uh -oh. If you don't know who Sam Walton is, he is the founder of the $575 billion company, Walmart. His manager was wrong. Walmart is the single largest corporation in the world. It's a half a trillion dollar company. Because he cared about customer service. And that was his wealth. Now, I don't know what happened to it since then. But, but that was the wealth in him. He was never good at book work. But when you went into his store, somebody greeted you at the door. And they were friendly. And he focused on things that nobody had done before. Like putting everything in one building so you didn't have to go to different shops to get everything. He would do things like he found ways to, cost, to, to cut costs so that he could lower his prices. So you add low prices to good service, you're going to make money. He said, we're not going to build corner stores in big cities. We're going to build big stores in small towns. That was genius. Now, of course, the small shops didn't like him. But $575 billion later, you know, take it with a grain of salt. Long story short, does not matter your condition. Somebody tell you you can't do something, do it anyway. His manager was mammon-minded. This is how it's done. This is how we do it. This is how, you'll never make it if you don't do it like this. But Sam, he was kingdom-minded. And I'm not saying he was saved. I'm saying in this example, he was kingdom-minded. He knew what he was made of. And instead of trying to be what Mammon said he had to be to be successful, he just doubled down on what he was. See, a bird is just going to be all bird all day. Jesus said they don't sow, they don't reap, they don't gather in the barns, because that's human stuff. Birds don't go hungry because they all bird all day. God has instructed every single one of us to go back to being what he made us and then believe him for that thing we don't think we're ready to believe for. You don't have a right to tell God what you're supposed to be believing for. Amen. 
I made a mistake a couple weeks ago. I was talking to Jalen about a, a deal, and I was excited about it, but because it was so new, I told him, I said, you know, I'm trying to be careful because I don't want to, I don't want to tell God what I want. And he understood what I was saying. Because what I was saying was, I don't want to get ahead of God. I want to be sure that he's instructing me and I'm not just telling him I'm going to go do this. I knew what I was trying to say. He knew what I was trying to say. But the Lord wouldn't let me sleep on that. He said, tell me what you want. He said, I know how to tell you if you're wrong. If you don't hear me tell you you're wrong, you're probably not wrong. I done talked up all my time. Y'all don't let me do all this talking. Didn't even say nothing. <laughs> You're probably not wrong. You're probably just scared. That's the Dell Davis in me. There's a little bit of Dell Davis in me. There's a whole lot of Dell Davis on me. I know that. In closing, you're probably not out of faith. You're probably just out of obedience. You need to go back. You know that thing that you really, really want? One day, start there. If you're out of order, God will put you in order, but you don't give him a chance. You haven't given God a chance to correct you because you're just not going anywhere. You're just going to stay right where you are. You can talk all the trash you want. You come in here, sow all the seeds you want. You can't sow. I'm out of time. You can't sow and then sit around. If you sow, you got to go reap, and you don't reap sitting in your chair. The harvest is out there. Your harvest is out there. You ain't doing nothing to get it, but sitting around waiting for God to bring it to you. He ain't going to do it. I've supposed to be talking about someone. I ain't saying but two things about it. Somebody was pulling. Let's wake up, people. We got to start. I ain't going to say dreaming. You've been dreaming a long time. You got to start receiving. And you ain't going to receive doing more dreaming. You done dreamed enough. You know what you want. You know God will do it. You know God can do it. What are you waiting on? What are you waiting on? If you don't have wisdom, ask of God. James chapter 1. He'll give you all the wisdom you need liberally, the Bible says. And he won't even rebuke you for it. But don't go to him double-minded. There goes that mammon again. He says, don't go to him double-minded. Whatever he tells you to do, you better be ready to do it and die doing it. Amen. That's how you receive. Amen. Amen.